0: My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary.
1: Kind. I mean, I, 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 he was—he was just a kind man. You know, nobody's perfect, and I'm sure he wasn't perfect. But you know, I—I I was in that truck with him every moment I could spend with him. And he just made you feel better.
0: I'll ask Mama, she'll know what to do. Tell me, tell me, Mama, tell me, tell me true. I know you know, I know, you know just what to do. Hello, and welcome to a special Father's Day edition of Our Mothers Ourselves. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host.
1: Tell me, tell me, mama, what do I got to do? I know, you know, I know, you know just what to do. Happy
0: Father's Day. My guest today is Talmadge Everett King, Jr., know, Dean of the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. As a pulmonologist, Dr. King is a world-renowned expert in interstitial lung disease, Dr. King is also the son of Talmadge Everett King Sr. In Darien, Georgia, where he and his wife Almeida raised their five children, Talmadge Sr. did electronics repair and sold seafood door-to-door. And then, he was so highly respected a member of the community that when Darien integrated its police force in the 1960s, people in town on both sides of the racial divide recruited him. Talmage Sr., always looking forward, seldom looking back, raised his kids by way of this metaphor. If your father builds a wooden house, you build a brick one. Dr. King, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me today on Father's Day uh, to talk to me about your dad.
1: Thank you. Appreciate having the opportunity.
0: I have to disclose that I know you, and I've heard through the years that you were close to your dad. Yep. And he died, I understand. He was 95, is that right?
1: Yes, in 2018.
0: And uh he lived a very full life. So I'd mm-hmm. like to go I'd like to go through that life yep. with you. Uh let's start with what you know about his his childhood.
1: Yep. So my dad uh, was born in South Carolina in a town called Sumter it's in the center of the state. Um farming kind of community. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as a child, he moved with his mother, who had separated from his dad, um, to St. Simon Island, Georgia. Um, And it's one of the small islands off the coast of Georgia. At that time, there were not many inhabitants on the island. So he grew up on, on the island, and then there was no school for black kids there. So he ended up Going to a church school that was established by the Episcopal Church, and he he did that in a town called Darien, which was about seventeen miles away from where he actually lived. Um, And uh, after finishing his education, he then went into the army.
0: Okay, so let's uh, we're going to tease this apart a little bit. So he um, was born in Sumter.
1: Yes, and
0: his dad's name was Marcus.
1: Yes. And
0: his mom's name was Mamie?
1: Mamie Watson, yes.
0: Mamie Watson. And what do you know about, about his parents' parents and their parents?
1: Well, Mamie uh, Watson grew up in a small town in South Carolina called Pinewood, which is near Sumter. They were farmers, basically sharecroppers, mm-hmm. but they also um, had a you know, small business in the town.
0: And what do you know about the Kings going back?
1: Yeah, so my 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 grandfather was uh, his father was Cherokee, um, and I and it turns out we don't I don't know very much about my great grandfather, and my father also didn't know very much about him. He he only met him once or twice in his entire life. Mm. But he was very connected to his dad, so I knew him, my grandfather Marcus King, really well, and I spent a lot of a lot of time with him. In fact, we spent a lot of summers at my granddad's. He had land of his own. He grew his own food. He had animals, uh, and he had a little store.
0: Hmm. But so, but Marcus and Mamie, are they the ones who split up early? Yes did he did your dad tell you stories about growing up on St Simon's Island?
1: uh yeah so my my dad uh it was it was a great place to grow up, right It was a small, safe community my my his mother Mamie was a domestic all the time I knew her. She worked for the same family on St Simon. They're very relatively wealthy. I never got to know them um, they she kept that pretty separate. Um, but what's interesting is my mother, my grandmother, Mamie, my dad's mother, um, she actually worked for the Talmadge's.
0: You mean the Herman Talmages?
1: Yeah. And that's how my dad got his name. Sort of. We never completely understood that story, but at that time she worked, she worked for that family, but it doesn't sound like that lasted very long as my dad was growing up, but. Um there was some relationship there that was never spoken.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. So wait a minute. I'm trying to get the timing right. So Mamie would have, so Mamie was um, Talmadge Senior's mom. And she would have worked for the Herman Talmadge family before her son was born because she named him Talmadge. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, there was some there was something about the family and that family name that ended up with my dad being named Talmadge. and it never was clear to me what, if anything, was was there. Um, but um, and it, so it had to be. So that had to be in the in the nineteen twenties. So that was well before Herman and Eugene were prominent.
0: Right, I mean Herman, and you know Herman himself wasn't he a famous
1: segregationist? They both were. They were awful. Yeah, one was governor and one was senator. A couple of bad actors. <laughs> but but Eugene, somewhere at the at about the time, because I mean, Herman may have died already, but Eugene was around in the sixties when all of this was going on. He was not a nice anyway. He was not a nice person. So I, I
0: well in Georgia. Um, at the time, what a mess. Yeah. There were lynchings.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I never heard a word about that. And I went to the Montgomery um, Museum, and I and I went through and looked for all the, na- all the places I'd lived in the South. Uh, actually, every place I'd lived to see where there, there were lynchings. And I was shocked because my dad would have been about 10 or 11 the last time there was a lynching in either McIntosh County or Glen County, the two counties that we lived in. Um, and so I, it was surprising to me because I never heard him talk at all about it. Actually, nobody in my family talked about that. So he would have been old enough to have experienced it and understand what had happened, but he never mentioned it.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think was his reason?
1: Well, he didn't. My dad didn't didn't wallow much in the past. It's he, he was a forward-thinking sort of person, um, and he didn't... Actually, I was so sad that I couldn't go back and ask him because I'm sure he would have had a story to tell. <laughs> but I never did, I, did have an opportunity to ask him.
0: Yeah. And um, so he went to this school for um, Black children because Black children couldn't get educated in white schools. So he went to this school... The church school, an Episcopal church.
1: Yes, St. Cyprian in
0: Darien. How did he get back and forth?
1: My grandmother's brother lived in Darien and was a member of that church, um, and that, and wasn't and it, and he lived probably three blocks away from it, so he may have stayed with him.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, what's your sense of the of the kind of education he got?
1: I think it was. You know, but not very strong. I I don't, I think that it was, they probably, they had limited resources. And I, I think that he, you know, he wasn't very well prepared. And then the the war came out. And so that's how he ended up in the army. Mm -hmm.
0: And he went into the army in what year?
1: Must've been in the early 1940s. Cause, cause he got out, he got out two years before I was born. So. Um, so he must've been in, in like 44 to 46, he was in the Philippines mostly, but he was in Australia and the Philippines. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And do you know what he was doing?
1: Well, he, he, he was an infantryman Mm -hmm. at the beginning and then he, and then he took up electronics and got trained and became an electronics repairman. So that was his trade, um. That he got while he was in so
0: treatment. you know when you say electronics now we kind of know what you're talking about but back then what was electronics
1: that It was cathode ray tubes uh-huh. <laughs> and radio right so he did radio repair um and then he went you know then he then he started doing television repair and then you know transistors came along and you know it evolved over time mm-hmm. but he
0: a very enterprising guy, from what I can tell.
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, he did a number of things. He was never not busy. Yeah. Um, I would say he was always working, and he he was fiercely independent. He did not want to work for anybody. He wanted to work for himself. So he was willing to try a number of different things to make sure we were all provided for. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's dial back a little bit to, um, it sounds like he met your mom, the love of his life back in some, Sumter.
1: Yeah. The stories I've heard actually since their death is that they, they knew each other, but they weren't, they weren't sort of a thing until he came back from the, from the military. And then that's when they became closer and then got married.
0: Mm. Do you think, do you think he sought her out and, uh,
1: it was always a joke about who saw who out who but <laughs> but my cousin Elizabeth who was in, in between them age-wise um so she it turns out she knew them both absolutely well like she she's my dad's first cousin but but she grew up in the same went to the same school so she knew Almeida and Talmage. um and so she tells a different story than either one of them told about how they got together. <laughs> yeah. So
0: uh, different versions, depending on.
1: Uh, who's telling the story. They were <laughs> they overlap, you know, but, but they, um, cause if you hear her tell it, she was the one that introduced Almeida to challenge. Cause uh-huh. Almeida had a crush on her, but you know, so who knows?
0: Well, who wouldn't have a crush on him? The photo, the wedding. I guess that's her wedding photo that uh, you sent me. Um, she has a, looks like a carna- a white carnation in her hair. Yep. And he's got this wonderful hat on, and he's looking very almost mischievous.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you want to know what he's thinking?
0: Yeah, you definitely <laughs> want to know what he's thinking. That was right. in forty-seven, and there, and that would have been in Darien.
1: Sumter. Oh, in
0: Sumter, I keep getting these places confused. So you're one of five kids.
1: The oldest of five.
0: You're the oldest, so you're Talmud Junior. With this dubious name, Talmud. And your memories of your dad are that he was always busy. He did his electronics repair. He sold fish.
1: Yes, on the back of the truck. Yes, I helped him with that a lot.
0: Oh, you did. Was it at a at a market?
1: No, so he went door to door so so we grew up on you know we grew up on the ocean, and and grew up in a fishing town, actually, so uh, the boat, yeah, the boats would come into the dock uh-huh. and they would come in on Monday, Tuesday. He would get the fish usually on Wednesday, we'd pack it up um, and he would drive about fifty miles away to the in, inland of Georgia, mm-hmm. but he would sell it. Door to door to farmers and people, uh, in basically in rural areas who just didn't have access to it. So he'd go from one farm to the next selling fish or bartering for his fish or whatever.
0: What kinds of things would get bartered?
1: Mostly food. So, you know, watermelons, some number of watermelons for a pound of fish and uh, vegetables and, and then, and then money, mostly cash, but, but people didn't have money. He would he would barter with someone and then sell what he bartered at the next place. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a fascinating thing to me.
0: And you were how old when you were part of this?
1: Oh, it uh, until I went to high school. He stopped doing it when he became a police officer. Mm-hmm. So I was in high school, uh, maybe he was doing it after I left Darien. But throughout throughout, as far as I can remember, that was something he did.
0: And people must have known he was coming.
1: Yeah. So he, over years, they expected him on Thursday and they expected him about a certain time. So he had the same route after he'd established it. Mm-hmm. So they knew Thursday at 10, he would probably be there. So people were waiting for him. And there were a couple of tiny towns where he would go door to door in the town, a, a town called Blackshear, Georgia, places like that. that were really tiny. And there was there was no person that he met that wasn't a friend of his you know he was just that kind of personality so so he he made friends uh-huh. very easily
0: so as you were watching this when you were a little kid it must have made an indelible impression on you
1: oh uh, yeah i mean i i i mean and he 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 would he would talk to me a lot we i'm sitting in the truck with him and we talk about a lot a lot of things um and um and and he would Talk about how he would handle certain situations and how he dealt with certain kinds of people, and he would fig- he would explain how he sized them up, and that you know it, uh, it you know he, he it it, w- it would seem like he had known them for a long time, and you'd have no idea that you'd never met them. I mean, it, it was amazing to me.
0: And did he sell the fish to both the black and white communities? Yes,
1: I would say. Mostly the white community because they, they're the ones that had the resources. So,
0: this was the fifth 1950s in a largely segregated South. And, um, your dad, he sounds like a person of incredibly positive spirit.
1: Yeah, that's the way he was. And, uh, and a, and the gift of, of Gab. I mean, he, um, I mean, he could just start talking to you, and you, and that's what I meant. You would think. He would come back to the truck, and I said, "Well, Dad, how, you know, how do you know that guy?" And he goes, "I don't know him. I never met him before." And you <laughs> have no idea from the conversation that he had never met this person before. That's amazing! But he just had a way of bringing it out of people and and um, joking with them. Um, and he he was a he was a good salesperson. But let me tell you a sales story. So this is a this is a, a seafood story. So we were, we went to this one farmhouse. They didn't have any money, so the guy wanted fish. So he said, "I will, I will trade my watermelons for your fish." And he had pink watermelon. You've seen the pink watermelon there. Instead of the sort of oblong watermelon, you get this red. Uh-huh. These are round and it's very sweet and juicy. It's a very different taste. So we he loaded up. I don't know how many, but maybe five to ten of these watermelons, and we exchanged the fish. So we drove. Less than two miles to the next big farm, and my dad got out to sell, to try to sell them the fish. And the guy looked in the truck and said, "Oh, you have some pink watermelon." We don't. And he, here's what he said: he, "We don't get those around here." And my dad said, "These are really good. We got, you know, I got them really special, and I thought I'd, I'd try to sell them to you." And the guy says, "Well, we never get these around here." So the guy bought all of the watermelon. We got back in the truck, and I'm like, "Dad, what are you talking about? That we just got it from the last farm." He says, "Don't worry, these are the best watermelons he's ever had, and it, he could walk down the street and get them himself." But he it was it, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He had a straight face, he's like, "No, these these are really special. I just got these for <laughs> to bring." I mean, <laughs> it, it, he got his money the next in the next stop. That's so it was, good.
0: So, well, why did when and why did he become a police officer?
1: Wasn't his choice cuz I, I tell you he didn't want to work for anybody. Mm-hmm. So the community drafted him to be the to become a police officer. So they came to him. The black community came to him and said, "You're the, you know, basically you have to do this." And he absolutely did not want to do it. But he was drafted into it.
0: And was it just because of the times, and there was so much turmoil, or was it um, was there a precipitating incident that
1: it was the it was the times that we were in? This is in the '60s. It was when all the crises were going on, and and the desire to integrate everything, really, but the police department in particular. Um, And I would say the other thing was that the prominent white members of our community knew him pretty well. And mm-hmm. my they they had to pick someone everybody in the community knew and respected. Mm-hmm. So my dad was, I would say, without question, sort of respected on both sides of the racial divide. And and he you know, he made it a point to honor anything he said. Uh, and then, because he was doing all this repair work for people, people got to know him in that way. I would say there were only a couple of the prominent members of the community who we avoided. yeah, I mean my dad would not would not you know um, work for them or go to their businesses, but most of them he he knew and they respected him, and he and he joined the city police at the beginning. Um, and then eventually he spent most of his career on the sh- in the sheriff's department.
0: And do you know why he made the switch to the sheriff's department?
1: Yeah, so the, the sheriff's department, they paid a little better, and they were much better people, I'll be honest with you. The, my mom did not like the other city police he worked with. In fact, most of them she would not let in the house. She would always go outside and talk to them at that car <laughs> on the street because she just didn't like them. And she didn't want Dad working with them.
0: These were white guys.
1: Yeah, he's the only black guy. So they're all—all all the rest were. They—they they were pretty nasty. Uh, and so then he joined joined the sheriff's department. The sheriff. So we lived not far from the sheriff's department. So we knew them. We knew that. We knew the sheriff pretty well. My dad knew him really well, and so so he he joined that department. Once the sheriff realized he could integrate the department,
0: mm-hmm. do you know how he was treated?
1: Um, uh, I think he was treated okay. The the thing that my mom was so she, the thing that my mom was upset about, and I'll tell you the rest of the story. In a second was he he was almost always given the graveyard shift, uh, and so and that meant that he was often out in a car by himself in the middle of the night. Um, and so he, she didn't like that at all. And I think that's what let me, one of the things that made him leave the the city police mm-hmm. is that they were unfair in their assignments of mm-hmm. time, of, you know, of rotations. Uh, and the sheriff department was was at least better. People rotated different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, af- and then after I left home and whatever. So my brother My brother went to college and studied criminology, came back and was a police officer in my hometown as well, and became my dad's boss. So in charge of the department working, he was second in command in the sheriff's office. My mother's first thing to my brother is, okay, now I'm going to tell you what his schedule is. (laughs) So so, so he, so he could, so she gave, he he have the schedule she wanted him to have.
0: I love that.
1: And so, um, and we lived in a very integrated community. I mean, this is a small town. So there was, there was actually pretty much no black section and no white section. And, and where where I grew up, there were whites on, we were the only blacks on our block. Well, then dad bought the block. So that made it easier over time. Wait,
0: your dad bought the block?
1: Yeah, you know, you, you just bought it. All the things all around us, right? One house at a time it, it, when we talk about a small town, like, you know a small, poor town. so you're not in a place where things are turning over quickly and there's a lot of growth. It's never grown. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't in you know Los Angeles or someplace where you could turn things over and and make a profit, but he but that's what he did. He'd buy someone's house and go in and refurbish it and then sell it, but it wasn't. It wasn't like you hear about the real estate moguls (laughs) in big towns. He basically, his philosophy was, if I own the land, that's one thing it's harder for them to take from me. Mm -hmm. For him, owning land was like a critical thing. And And there were a lot of forces against him. I mean, he wasn't able to really take advantage of the GI Bill the way he should have been, given he was a vet.
0: Well, blacks got, blacks got locked out. I mean, technically, they were supposed to get benefits, but there was so much discrimination, right?
1: And, and actually, that it, that started to change. And like, he had trouble like getting loans from the bank to for his business and that sort of thing. He, he was always overcharged on interest. In fact, you know, I'm in charge of the estate now, so I've gone back and looked at some of the some of the you know some of the contracts he had uh, with the bank, and it was like awful. How much they overcharged them, and, and what he did was he always tried to just pay it off, understanding that he was being ripped off.
0: And so, were you? You must not have been surprised when you went back and looked at the papers to see there were these outrageous interest rates he was being charged.
1: Yeah, I, I remember talking to my sister about the fact that you know I looked at one, and he was like. The interest rate was like 11% or something, 10 to 11% at a time when it should have been like six. And I'm like, it's crazy. Um, But anyway, you just, he he was always just making it work. And then, um, but he, but he kept working at it. And he, and he also realized that there are people who were not, who were not there to help him. They were. They would do anything to keep him down,
0: mm. uh,
1: and he. There's several stories he told about that too. What?
0: What? Well, one, that, well, one of
1: them? well. One, one that really, really affected him. So I must have been, around, must have been less than ten years old. I was a little kid, and he got a new truck. Up until that time, you know, his truck, all his trucks were sort of used or whatever but he actually had enough money he went and bought a a new truck and he went to the ice house to buy ice in preparation for one of these trips to sell seafood door-to-door and the guy who ran the ice house looked at his truck and asked him where did he get it from and he said that's my new truck and he looked at him and he said you know i will do anything to keep you from being able to do that you don't deserve that Mm -hmm. and because he was so blatant that he basically He would do anything in his power to keep him down that was the last time we went to that ice house we we started driving 60 miles away to get ice because he would not go back to that ice house and that and now you know that really really affected it oh my Um, gosh
0: and were you there
1: no i wasn't there
0: um that's horrific yeah. So his way of dealing with it was just to go 60 miles to a different ice house. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when it came time for his kids, i.e. you and your four siblings, to go to school, what would you say his ambitions for you were?
1: Um, <laughs> he had this funny way of saying it, but what he would say, what he said to me often in the truck as we were driving along, something along the lines of, if your if your father built a wooden house, your responsibility is to build a brick house. And for the longest time, I going to figure out what the heck he's talking about. But you, you didn't he, get it. I got it, but I you know it, was, it took me a while to realize his thing was his expectation was you do better than I did. That's what that's what that's what I want you to do. Mm. And they, my mom, nor dad, all they expected is for me to, to study and and. And my mother's thing was be nice. Mm -hmm. Um, And my dad, basically, Mm -hmm. his whole thing was don't be afraid to work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said, he he really liked being in a position where you're not dependent on others so that you can make your own decision. I think that I don't know exactly how that happened, what happened in his life, but that really was a big issue for him. And so he. So the whole expectation was that we would complete high school and go off to college. It was it mm-hmm. was it wasn't that they talked about it all the time. It was just there. That's what you're gonna do.
0: And did all of you do that? Yes. Yeah. Did he go to college?
1: No. He just went to trade school. Yeah. And, and you know, he over time he went to a whole bunch of other classes and stuff like that mm-hmm. too. Because every time something new came, he had to go back and learn mm-hmm. it. I remember when transistors came. He, that was a particularly trying time.
0: He sounds like he was a very smart guy.
1: Yeah, I would. I would say he. I would say he would say about himself was that he was. He was street smart. He. He wasn't fooled very, very easily. Like he didn't. He was very kind to people. In fact, he would. He would loan people money, which upset us more than upset him. And he was. He was like. He was like a banker in a way. I mean, people would want to borrow things from him. And he he would he he knew who to do it with, right? He didn't do it with everybody who for example, somebody's about to lose something. He would figure out a way to get them the money to retain it. And I swear they wouldn't pay him back mm-hmm. except he would always say, I'm not broke because these people owe me. There'll be times you could see him in agony because the light bill Mm -hmm. is due or he's got to buy the fish or whatever. Like somebody's somebody's going to pay me. And I swear somebody would walk to the house and hand them what they owe him. I'm like, how in the world does this happen? But he just had the faith that it'll happen.
0: And it um, did,
1: and it seemed like it always did. I mean, I was—it was just amazing.
0: And when, so when you uh, you went to college and then medical school, what, how did he react to the success that you had?
1: So he, I would say, I mean, he admired it a lot. The way he expressed it was really subtle, but in my view, I mean, you know, because I got to know my dad so well, I knew when he was happy. He didn't have to say it. And I think that he, you know, uh, well, his, you know, basically his son, Junior, is the doctor. <laughs> mm. He let the whole world know that.
0: Nice. It sounds like he gave you the opportunity to have the opportunity, right?
1: He never, I don't remember him ever telling me not to do something. He would listen and sort of question it. And try to figure out, have I thought through all the things? Mm -hmm. But he never said, no, you can't do that. He would try to get me to see, you know, the pros and cons. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to do it, then do it, but you better do it well. Like when I decided to leave Darien and go to Minnesota to college, Mm -hmm. they were not happy about that. But... It was like, do you think that's the right thing for you? Are you prepared for being so far away? He didn't try to stop it. He just wanted to make sure I understood what I was doing.
0: Right. And did your dad ever talk about the legacy of enslavement in the country?
1: Um, not 100%. You know, there were a couple of plantations. There's a plantation near where we grew up, and he knew about what was going on over there, but he never... He never would go there. It's interesting. Like they would ask him to come work on something, he would never go there.
0: You mean to do some
1: to do work or whatever? Um, In fact, I I was I was thinking that I was I was thinking you know that I don't think we ever went on that plantation. Uh, I've forgotten the Hofel I think it's called, but because they did police work. I'm sure he had to go over that, possibly in in, in that when he did that. But um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of a functioning thing, as far as I know, for for, for most of my adult life. Anyway, it's still there, but uh, but I, I've never been. I, I I don't think I've ever been there. I have no idea what it is, and it's literally five miles from my house.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's not a place where he would ever nope. set foot. Wow. So he really—I mean, he—he he really was a man of principle.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so like we, when we he would do television repair. So back then, I remember the televisions were gigantic with the picture tube and the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to see them now. And you, he would go in and and most of the time when the when it wasn't working, it was a tube that blew out. Uh-huh. So you could go in and figure out which tube blew up, put it in and the television will work. So he did a lot of repairs in the house. And an example of how he worked was if he pulled up to the house and the and is is the white family and they often they would tell him, Go around to the back and come in. He would go get in his car and leave. He wouldn't say anything, he wouldn't argue with them, he'd just leave. Um because he didn't like he didn't he didn't like being told to, to do that. There was no, nobody else was being asked to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, but he didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like an open confrontation. He would just go away. <laughs> and I saw him do that multiple times, just get back in the truck and we drive on away. I, you know, I think he was hurt by it, but it was like, well, no, if that's the way you feel about me, then I don't need your business.
0: What do you think he'd say about now? What's happening, especially with the police? I'm sure you've thought a lot about
1: it. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I you know, given that my brother, my, my one brother died in, in 2018, the one that became his boss, Ronnie. The other brother, Thornell, is actually uh, head of the police department in Brunswick and the state troopers in Brunswick, where. Ahmaud, Aubrey all that's going on mm-hmm. I think if he were here now he would but basically what I think he would be saying is that the pl- police department reform needs to be done mm-hmm. and you got to do it from the inside in fact I would say what happened in the area in itself if just looking at that history when he joined the force there were people mm-hmm. on it who did really bad things and they worked to change that they worked to, to weed out the guys who stop people for no reason mm-hmm. who, who were, who were physical with people that they stopped. Um, and, you know, and my, 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 uh, my, my brother Ronnie worked, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did, they, they actually did uh sensitivity training or whatever we call it years and years ago to try to get mm-hmm. people beyond that. I, I think that, he, you know, he would, what he would say is we have to have rules, that get rid of the the people who do wrong, it, you know. It's it's not just it's not it's not bad apples. This is a bad system, and you got to fix the system, and then the bad apples will be pushed out, you know. Cause, and I you know I think I already mentioned that my mom, there were some people my mom, my mom said they're crazy and they're racist, and she wouldn't would she, you could you know you knew who they were. So the
0: one thing I ask people. Is if you were to describe your dad in in one word, one adjective, what would that word be?
1: Kind. I mean, I, I he was a, he was just a kind man, uh, and, and and he would give the shirt off his back to people, and that, that was part of what I was saying. We we would be upset with him about that, but he it's like he didn't worry about it, you know. I guess what I liked about my dad is that I can honestly say I thought he was just a good person you know nobody's perfect and I'm sure he wasn't perfect but but you know i I was in that truck with him every moment I could spend with him and he just made you feel better you know I wish I had that quality of, of me my both of my brothers have it they the ability to just my, my dad walks up to someone. And just starts talking and before you know it, they tell him everything. Like what you know, it's like what 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 is it about you that makes people so immediately comfortable? And I think it's, it was his genuine interest. He actually wants to know about you and would remember it. That's the other thing. I can't remember it. I talk to people and, you know, I remember things about my patients, but he would actually Come back and see you, you know, at a time period later and recount the whole story. So that means he was actually paying attention to you. It was an interesting quality uh, that he had. Um, and I would say he, he, he just, he, he was always just making it work. And he always believed that things could be better and that he could do better. And I think that's what he and you know, tried to instill in us. I mean, I think I took it hook, line, and sinker. You know, he, he just he he just wanted to keep things moving forward. He would always talk about how crazy segregation was because it separate was equal was never equal and it was it was very costly and he tried to convince people that this is just silly. It's 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 not about race, it's about poverty and opportunity. Um, and he basically tried to instill in us, you know, this idea that, you know, you, you have to make your own opportunity. I mean, that, that's what he was always doing.
0: You must miss him.
1: Yep, a lot. Yeah. Every I'm day. so
0: sorry you lost him.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. You know, he, he, was, he was proud of the progress that he and the family made. So,
0: Well, Talmadge King Jr., I'd like to thank you so much for talking to me about Talmadge King Sr. It's been really great.
1: No, Thank you very much, and thank you for allowing me to share memories of what I think was a a great American.
0: And that's it for our special Father's Day edition of Our Mothers, Ourselves. I had editing help this week from Allison Thomas and Joseph Francis. Our theme song was composed and performed by Andrea Perry, and our artist-in-residence is Paula Mangin. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week and stay safe.